Busy people and lots of yellies, Worcester hipsters and fat up townies. We have more than pizza in common, with two rocks for bookends. New Haven, New Haven, New Haven, between two rocks. All right, and welcome back to the Between Two Rocks podcast slash YouTube channel, question mark. Yeah, so this is the first ever uh, video of the Between Two Rocks podcast, which you may or may not be watching. I don't know. Maybe you're just on Spotify. I haven't figured it out yet. We don't know what's going to happen, but we're recording this via Zoom, and then presumably we're going to take the audio and get that around on Spotify and Stitcher and all that jazz, but I don't know what's going to happen. You may never hear this. Mm-hmm. So. It may, may not be recording at all. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This could end up being a colossal waste of time. So, uh, but yeah, I'm your host, Josh Levinson. I'm here once again with Colin Ryan. Hey, how's it going, Josh? Good to be here again. This feels yeah, a, lot, a lot more like work than the normal podcast. Does it? <laughs> yeah, just being on a Zoom call. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I mean, but I didn't have to put pants on. So I feel like it's kind of a wash. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know. I feel it neutral. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to put pants on at Baobab Tree. They'd be fine with that. That's true. But I just feel like anytime I leave, I don't know. It depends. When I go to Walgreens, like that's one thing I like living about, like in, you know, not the nicest neighborhood is that if I go to like the Walgreens in pajamas, nobody's judging me. Yeah. Know? I think like, that's a Walgreens thing in general. Most Walgreens pants are optional. Yeah. Fair. Fair. Cool. So yeah, we've been recorded one in, I don't even know, a while. It's been a while. So mm-hmm. uh Yeah. How you doing, Colin? Doing pretty good, man. Nice. How's your son? He's doing great. He's he's yeah. growing bigger by the day. Oh yeah. Nice. Does he talk? Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he verbalizes. Yeah. Okay. Um, he, he's nice. got a, a range of words. It's funny if I brought him on the Zoom right now, he he mm-hmm. just would be totally nonverbal, and you would think that he didn't talk at all. But yeah, yeah, he talks That's when he's comfortable. That's how I am sometimes at parties. You know, <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Is that adult nonverbal? <laughs> yeah. Henry's got Henry's got two close friends and he's he's uncomfortable otherwise. Yeah, fair. Yeah. And this is yeah. exactly a good time to learn to socialize. So Yeah. Cool. Uh so our guest this week, as you can probably see if you're on YouTube or wherever we've released this, uh, is Richard Volkman, who is the chairperson of uh philosophy over at Southern Connecticut State University. Mm-hmm. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for having me. You go you like Richard? Do you go by Richard? Richard is good. Perfect. All right, great. Not rich. Great. Love it. Double syllable. Rick, but yeah. Or Rick. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I don't know you like that. You know, let's maybe by the end. Yeah, yeah. Philosopher Rick. I mean. Philosopher Rick. Now with more than maybe maybe I'll go back to Rick, right? Uh, Because. That's even more syllables. Richard's good. Richard Richard does sound more scholarly. That was in grad school. I became Richard. Okay, nice. So you are, this is a new position for you as the chairperson of philosophy over there. Yes, it is. Yes, uh, new as of when? New as of this fall. So it's been about the worst possible time to take over this new, I don't know, maybe it's been the best possible time. I don't have much to compare it to. But um, yeah, the, uh, the pandemic has been a real challenge on a whole bunch of different dimensions. Um, I was talking to uh, Colin before, before we got started here a little bit about... And it was exciting and you guys all missed it. Just so you know, like the best yeah. part of the podcast we did not record. <laughs> no, pure gold at the beginning. <laughs> Well, but the challenges in the classroom are one thing, and everybody's facing that. The challenge from, from the point of view of the chair involves a whole bunch of other dimensions, not the least of which is enrollments are way off, and we sure yeah. 
they bounced back in the fall. You know, I, I can't blame a lot of students who figured right, no, or maybe delaying their education for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Let's give a miss to this year and come back when we can do it right. Um, because yeah. uh, we can, we can do a lot online and, and students who are really well motivated can, can still get a decent education. But that was not me. I'll tell you that. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It takes, it takes a lot more. Yeah. Starting. Did they give you that chair when you became the chair? This chair? No, yeah. this, this is my old chair. Uh, with it's the your old chair? They didn't even give you a chair to become chair? Uh, the, the, uh, well, uh, there is one. Or is, there is a chair at the school? On campus. So, uh, you right, know. Right, right. You don't ever, do you ever just go in there and just sit on the chair and spin and spin? Uh, you know, I don't. Uh, but I do go in. I do go in. <laughs> but now that I put the thought in your head. Uh, well, yeah, now, now maybe I will. Maybe I will now. Although I don't well, know if I'm if you could send a video of you doing that, it would help me a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, now you got me thinking. So maybe we'll figure that out. That's what I'm here for. Ideas. Uh, so congratulations. Did you have to kill the last chairperson? Is that how that works? Thank goodness they abolished the uh, you know trialander rule. Uh, yeah, and it was just a simple vote amongst the department, mostly precipitated by the previous chairs earnest desire to get out of the chair uh, okay i got you a lot of work it's, it's it wasn't like a fraught political you weren't like this isn't like a house of cards where you're like secretly working against people except insofar as people are secretly working to try not to be chair right, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no no you it's i think you'd be a great leader <laughs> no no please there you got it exactly Nice. And so the chair is like responsible for, you know, kind of deciding the curriculum and I mean, enrollment or how does it all? No. Um, it, I mean, in theory, I suppose, and in some programs maybe, but in philosophy, it is extremely important that we sustain the utmost respect for academic freedom because philosophers don't agree about stuff. And if mm. someone's trying to impose their vision, there's going to be fights. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be terrible. Uh, and so much to the contrary, the chair's job, I think, is to try to make it the case that those conflicting views don't wind up in open conflict, right? And try to give people the room wherein they get to choose for themselves, you know, what their curriculum is going to be. So there's a, there's a structure, there's a framework to it, you know, a certain kind of, you know, there's something that it is to teach ancient philosophy. And if you're bringing in, I don't know, um, you know, Rihanna videos, you better have an explanation of how that relates to Plato and Aristotle or something. But you know, I think it, it's self-explanatory. I don't understand yeah, yeah. why people need anything else. <laughs> Maybe job is to make sure that you uh, do that explaining, right? Um, and and uh, if you do that, then I'm perfectly cool with it. And I think that's the usual attitude that we we try to take. I feel like topic. you're giving me a hard time about my philosophy of Rihanna class, and I don't know why. Hey, hey, I would I would support your uh, offering a philosophy of Rihanna class. Just make sure that what you bill it as is that and not ancient philosophy, right? Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. She is not that ancient. No, no. Great. So how many, how many philosophers are there at, uh, at Southern that are, that are under you, that you're the, you're the, you lord over? Right now we have about uh, nine full-time faculty. And then if you include the adjuncts, we had about another half dozen to, depending on the semester and the enrollments, half dozen to more. But we've just been slashed, right, with the enrollment uh, declines due to the pandemic. And so we're, we're down to just two adjuncts right now. Are you considering all of the undergrads who are stoned and just watch The Matrix? Uh, yes, that's our target audience. No, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> 
those are exactly the people that I want to reach, right? Those people, yeah, they're ready. They're, they're, they're already thinking philosophically, maybe in a little more of a confused way than we'd like, but we can, yeah. we can remedy that. We can, it's much harder to get the people who don't ever have any philosophical thoughts to sort of entertain what we're trying to, to get at than it is folks who are doing bad philosophy, right? Yeah, what major do you think is the most opposite of philosophy? Bad philosophy either. Sorry, go ahead. What, what major do you think is like the exact opposite? You'd have the hardest time getting somebody to think philosophically. My, it, was, it was a really um, revealing moment to me, and I learned so much from this encounter I had with a student in accounting. So I would say maybe. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> who was insanely good at philosophy. I was just floored by how wow. and careful and detailed his thinking was. And I told him, you know, you are so good at this. I understand accounting, they'll pay you big bucks and there's not a lot of you know, money to be made in philosophy or whatever, but you could add it as a minor. You could add it as a second major. You're so good at it, right? Why wouldn't you want to do this? And he just looked at me, very flat expression on his face. He says, no, I love accounting. I'm like, how do you love accounting? I mean, to me, that would be the opposite. As yeah, I said. He's a sociopath. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably should have like reported him to somebody. Yeah, here, here's what he said. He said, well, actually, I'm diagnosed with uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, functional obsessive compulsive disorder. And when the numbers line up on that spreadsheet, it gives me a thrill. Wow. <sighs> that is something. It blew my mind and it reinforced, um, you know, the, the thing that I'm really interested in philosophically is the, what I call ethical individualism, which relies on this fact that each of us is a unique individual and that we do our best by becoming who we are to borrow a phrase from Nietzsche, who borrowed it from Pindar, which is ironic because they're all advocating individualism. But anyway, it reminded me, yeah, we are deeply different in our fundamental constitutions, and we need to find a way to enjoy our excellences, our virtues, um, in complementary ways, right? And to appreciate that what you love and the nature of the true, the beautiful, and the good that's appropriate to a creature like you is not necessarily the same as for anybody else. So I had to admit, you know, a person who really loves it when everything lines up Mm -hmm. would not be happy. So do you think that person was, do you think they were predestined to be an accountant? Well, yeah. (laughs) At the end of the day, I mean, I I wouldn't use the language of predestination because that's associated with Calvinism and it's got a whole bunch of religious overtones. But at the end of the day, I am a believer in uh, determinism, uh, causal determinism. The universe is unfolding according to regularities. There are limits to that, we know from quantum physics. Uh, but even there, uh, if we understand the philosophy of time, it sure looks like we have to think of every moment as existing as what it is. Uh, this, this kind of falls out of uh, Einstein's um, uh, general relativity that um, we shouldn't be thinking of the past as gone and we shouldn't be thinking of the future as non-existent, but we should be thinking of the universe as uh, unfolding from our perspectives inside of it. But from the outside, we would think of it as a four-dimensional space-time entity, right? Where over there is exactly analogous to back then or in the future. That is to say, location in time is like location in space. And everybody understands that when I'm sitting here in my my home office, my office on campus still exists. Well, likewise, when I'm sitting here right now talking to you, 
you know, two days ago when I was doing something else, that still exists in its own moment. This is a doctrine known as eternalism. And I don't think it, it is like deductively proven or it, it's necessary given Einstein's physics, but it is a very natural step to take after Einstein's physics. And that means, yes, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, this person was sort of a born accountant. And um, Does that I, mean that I, we don't have free will? It means that the free will that we have is going to be compatible with uh, determinism. Yeah, so... Uh, now, critics of... So I think I'm making a decision, but in fact, I was predetermined to eat waffles and not eggs this morning. How about this? You were predetermined to choose to eat waffles. Um, yeah. Based on my value system and my availability of waffles and... Yes. You know. Do you think Josh is incapable of being anything except a small town blog host? <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't speculate on that with any... Uh, uh, oh, we'll ask no, you again. You'd be right. You'd be we'll, right. Ask, we'll ask you 40 <laughs> minutes and then you can weigh in. <laughs> I would make the argument that not only does the past and future not exist, but now it doesn't really exist either, that this is all just sort of an illusion of our minds. Well, and, you know. Know, there's, there's a, a long tradition in ph various philosophies that speak to that. And that's part of the existential crisis, actually, that I had that caused me to rethink some of the stuff that I've been working on for a long time. Um, the yeah, I'm a big, uh, when I was actually, I went to CCSU for a year and I had this, uh, English professor and first of all, she was like, you got to leave this school. These kids are, you're, you're like these dummies. You got to get out of here and go to UConn or something. And I was like, okay, thanks. First of all, you're really denigrating the state university anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's like, you got to get into Albert Camus. And I didn't know anything about existentialism, but it was like a pretty mind, you know, blowing thing when I started reading Camus and Kierkegaard and Sartre. And I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't need to explore any further because I think I found what I like, you know? <laughs> Yeah, wonderful. And, you know, that is the, although you do still need to explore further. Nope. Um, nope. That first chapter <laughs> was it. He's done. I do not want to be further challenged. <laughs> it's, it's never done, right? I mean, once the bug bites you, once the philosophy bug now bites I'm 40. You, it's actually done. Yeah. Uh, 30s? Well, sure. It's lurking in the back of your mind. You wait. It'll come back. It'll <laughs> there. It will come back and, and you'll, you'll need to dig into it some more. But, um, you know, I got to say, at Southern, I think, we can cultivate a community, which is very into that. In fact, we, we uh, have a weekly philosophy club where it's just a free form. It's much like this conversation. And um, whatever comes up, comes up. And Camus and, and Sartre and Kierkegaard in particular all figure rather prominently in those conversations. And so there are people at Southern uh, who, who will can and will do those kinds of uh have those kinds of conversations yeah i think my teacher was wrong there were i had some i remember especially in like western civ i had some kids in my classes at ccsu who are super smart and like yeah. actually the best computer science professor i ever had was at central so like yeah I don't know, it, she was just you know the thing is you know I, I myself went to a university that is analogous exactly to what the the place that southern has in the in the hierarchy of universities uh, a former normal school, right? That is to say, it started as a teacher's college and mm -hmm. became a university over time. And this was in uh, Winona, Minnesota. Uh, uh, and uh, it was much the same. Uh, there are people who are as smart as absolutely anybody anywhere at all of these schools because there's lots of reasons that you wouldn't want to or couldn't go to one of these flagship universities. Yeah, money, time. Yeah, yeah just any number of issues, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it should be granted there are lots of people there who are not like that, right? I mean... Yeah, no, I think, you know, this English class, there were some dummies, but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there, there are lots of people there who maybe don't belong in any college at all, but how do you know until you tried it, right? And True. Uh, there's a fact. How will you know unless you spend $50,000 is the only way to be sure. That's right. <laughs> that's, why, that's why you should go to Southern, right? All your listeners... 100%, yeah. You should go to Southern because it won't... Go to an in-state university... It's only twenty eight thousand dollars. It's great. I promise. I promise. There is nothing that you will ask where I'll say I'm sorry. I could only answer that question for another twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> That's how philosophy should work. Actually, you should be doling it out for ten grand at a time. I do. I do. And but anywhere except in the classroom, people get angry with you if you do that. I was so. about to make an extremely dirty joke, and then I was like, you know what? Maybe we'll just uh, pump the brakes. <laughs> Now, now in the listener's imagination what that joke might have been. Absolutely. They know me well enough to, uh, to get there. <laughs> They'll be fine. So heroic individualism. Mm-hmm. That is what your website says. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sort of your, but you, you use a different term. Uh, what individualism? Uh, ethical individualism. Ethical individualism. Uh, yeah, so that's the more generic term uh, that I would use to refer to so we're all individual. Even people who drink pumpkin spice lattes, those people are individuals as well? Uh, yeah, you're an individual even if you're following the herd, right? Yeah. Although you're kind of denying your own individuality in that case. And you're, you're, if you're just doing it because everybody else is doing it, not because you like it, that would be troubling. But yeah, some, some folks are built to love the pumpkin spice latte. I, you know, I, I think this is all grounded. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm... I'm committed to at least keeping everything consistent with a thoroughgoing philosophical naturalism. That means the, everything has to fit with what we know from the sciences, right? That doesn't mm. exhaust everything that there is to say, but everything has to fit with that. And so I think if we want to understand pumpkin spice latte, we probably want to understand the human palate and the cultural circumstances that lead folks to thinking about all of this. And all of those conspire to create all of these different individuals. And there's going to be patterns that emerge. People will be similar in lots of ways. And wow, I really regret making this joke. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Let's dig deeper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, what have I done? Point a philosopher in a direction and they just kind of keep going. Yeah, no, I see. <laughs> I have to be a little more careful about what direction I point it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you didn't want the philosophy of pumpkin spice latte, you shouldn't. That was my bad. That was my mistake, and I have learned. Um, I actually had a question. This was back going back to. Um, I w- I do want to discuss heroic individualism, but um, I discussed the Matrix really r- earlier, and I was actually just kind of curious before I forget. Is like what what's a sort of popular movie that you think um, introduces philosophical thought in like a mainstream way, or well, you already philosophy friendly, right? I th- I think the Matrix really is. Uh, you think that's the quintessential? Well, I still, I show it or, or assign it in my uh, philosophy. Yeah, just because it challenges the fundamental like nature that we live in? It, it goes beyond that. It actually makes very self-conscious and very explicit references to all sorts of philosophy throughout. I mean, the basic, oh, really? premise, oh yeah, the basic premise illuminates the very key issue that Descartes brings up that sets up the, I think, therefore I am. Uh, Descartes is worried about exactly this thing. How do I know that external world exists at all? How mm-hmm. do I know what the thing is? And he keeps asking, do I know this? Do I know that? Until he gets back to, do I know that I exist? And then he realizes, well, if I don't exist, then how am I asking this question? Right. So he says, okay, I think, therefore I am. And then he tries to rebuild the whole world uh, in light of that. And so the matrix works really well in that. But 
but it, it's also drawing this fundamental distinction, which is the same distinction that really, in a way, starts what we think of as Western philosophy, at least in its fullest form. There are other philosophers before Plato, but in Plato, we finally get this, this bringing together of what we back then was called natural philosophy, what today we call science, along with these uh, questions about the ultimate nature of reality, metaphysics, and also ethics, right? And between those, and, and questions about knowledge. And so in Plato, we finally get the whole deal. But one of the things that Plato introduces is exactly this fundamental distinction between appearance and reality. Right, and the form of an object versus the object itself. You know, so, so yeah, I think that really is, I mean, there's lots of other movies and there's almost no movie out there that uh, lacks philosophical content, even sometimes despite itself, you know. Um, there's, if, if we think of philosophy as what we do- Even white chicks? Uh, I have seen that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the Wayans brothers were saying to be white women. It's yeah. pretty philosophically challenging. <laughs> so here's here's a philosophical puzzle that would emerge from that. It right? does challenge your belief about all the ideas you held about the world, though. <laughs> <laughs> if you believed in God before. This is going to challenge that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's and it's taking a stand about you know issues that I think today it's a very very uncomfortable to take a stand about. Well, uh, white chicks was not taking any stand. Well, <laughs> yeah. Except mocking white chicks. Yeah. <laughs> version of the blackface uh, archetype, which is now an absolute no-no. Yeah. And that raises, in my mind, I haven't seen the movie, right? But that raises yeah. my mind. I also have not seen the movie. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, but it's, I'm sure it's exactly what we're all picturing. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it challenges your expectations. <laughs> It's probably not designed to do that quite in that way. <laughs> uh, all right. So heroic individualism, hmm. um, I guess is basically just, yeah, it's about this idea of like being like who you are. Like we are, we're all our own people and sort of finding that and celebrating that is like, I mean, how would you give me a two sentence? Is this that, your, first of all, is this your own philosophy that you, that yes. you've come up with? I know it's the name of your website, so I'm, I'm yeah, hoping yeah. it's it, yours. So, so the way is this your brand? It, yeah, it sort of is. I mean, the way these things unfold is, you know, many scholars become interested in this or that thinker, and they become scholars of that thinker. Um, I'm not interested, uh, and this is an expression of heroic individualism now, I think. I'm not that interested in writing books about books. Uh, and I'm borrowing that, ironically, somewhat from Emerson, who's one of my favorite thinkers. Um, I'm not sure if I'd call him a philosopher, but he's definitely a thinker of some kind. And Emerson was this incredibly important influence on Nietzsche, who was another, uh, definitely a philosopher, although again, not quite like other philosophers, much nearer to a literary figure. Um, and, uh, but I don't consider myself an Emerson scholar. I'm not a Nietzsche scholar. You know, I'm not pouring over them for, to try to figure out what they really meant or anything like that. I'm inspired by them. And those are the two main figures of what I call heroic individualism, the antecedent figures. I think that's where it kind of really comes into its own. We could find others, Montaigne, they're both inspired by Montaigne. And um, I think I would usually include John Stuart Mill, even though his, his theoretical side is not very heroic individuals. He's a utilitarian. Um, but nonetheless, especially in his book on liberty, I think he really expresses the key ideas of um, heroic individualism, especially as they start to make their way into social and political philosophy. Um, so those would be the three main characters that would be the inspirations for it. But at the end of the day, it's what I'm doing and I get all the blame for all, all the stupidities in it. Right. 
And I'm sure there are plenty of stupidities in it because there is in everything. I've never, never had an idea that I thought would withstand scrutiny once and for all forever, right? It's a flux. It's a fluid. This is why, as Emerson says, you know, uh, um, a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of small minds and philosophers and divines, right? It's these, so now uh, that you've told us your philosophy is wrong, could you describe it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's fluid, you know. That, and, and I'm not. I appreciate to- the disclaimer. I also like to open up my comedy sets by saying this is probably not going to be great, but <laughs> <laughs> the more I do, the more deep I dig into this stuff. And this is why the website yeah. has been updated for six five years. Because I, I hit a wall where I'm, I'm stuck with a puzzle relating to the relationship between religion and what we might call ultimate morality or transcendent morality. And the relationship of that to heroic individualism, I think I have worked out. But um, I'm still working out this other part, which has become really pressing in my mind. So I haven't updated it because I'm going to need to change some things for sure. So I really am quite sure that there's, there's some stuff that's wrong. <clears throat> yeah. But the, the, the main idea, as you said, um, like Emerson, and I think also like Nietzsche, the main idea is to try to or encourage people to feel empowered to become who they are. That's a phrase that Nietzsche cites from Pindar, uh, but it captures this idea both of the fluidity because it emphasizes becoming rather than being, but at the same time, it acknowledges this fact that the universe kind of is what it is, right? And it's, it's becoming is... A, a function of our location in space and time in discrete moments, right? So it feels like it flows, uh, even though it is what it is. And one of the causes that leads it to become what it becomes rather than some other thing is precisely going to be your reflections on it and your thinking about it. And so the heroic individualist wants to encourage you to be, uh, to use now Emerson's um, key notion, self-reliant, right? And I take that to mean simply uh, a kind of honesty, right? And so, and, and when people hear that, they get nervous sometimes because they imagine that what Emerson is saying is that you should be like some oracle. In Emerson's view, he's kind of a Platonist. He thinks that the individual has a direct insight to the ultimate nature of reality through intuition that that person should give voice to. And I think I'm in substantial agreement with that, although I'd make a whole bunch of tweaks and changes to make it fit what we know now about brain science and a bunch of other things. But um, but the idea that um, you can just see things that others are not situated to see, and therefore you have um, at least a license, and I would argue probably even further that it's a duty, to try to articulate that perspective. That's your mission in life. That's what you're here for. If you depart from that, you might as well not exist at all, because that's the unique thing that you can bring for the rest of us to think about. But it's going to be, inevitably, a particular perspective that is by its nature not going to necessarily be applicable to everybody and it's going to be limited in a way that makes it by its nature wrong uh in just the way i was talking about before there's going to be stuff that is not accessible to you and this is why it's so important to get involved in a conversation with with others and it's in that conversation that hopefully the full picture the full notion of the nature of you know the universe and the answer to the life and the meaning of everything is to emerge, if it's going to emerge at all, it's going to be in that conversation where we have each individual articulating their ability to see one corner of it. You know, you might know that um, that uh, old uh, Hindu or Indian story of the three blind men and the elephant, right? Where, you know, they've each got 
a hold of a different part of the elephant and they ask him, what do you have in front of you? And one of them has the trunk and thinks it's like a snake and the other has a hold of the side of the thing and thinks it's like a, um, I don't know, like a big building or something. Um, that's how Does we one have the butt. One, well, I would, ex that's a great way to extend the, uh, uh <laughs> metaphor. I don't recall ever seeing it in the traditional tellings of that, of that uh, fable, but, uh, yeah, I, there, there would be room to do that. I'm not sure what that would be like. What would that be like? It what would it like a trunk is soft like hole. <laughs> We're describing it now. <laughs> I don't know, it's probably a polite way to describe how that experienced the elephant, but, um, do, but you, do you think the, um, differently, right? Do you think the idea of the, you know, everyone having their own perspective and that's important to develop your own perspective, does it, do you think that gives rise to um, kind of how, you know, we're living in this era of, of multiple truths and it's hard to, you know, it, we're having the hardest time just deciding that things are objectively true and you don't necessarily want to empower everyone to think that their unique perspective is somehow correct when it's, you know, we can objectively say that it's wrong. Yeah, except, well, so you put your finger on exactly the important puzzle that's going on here, especially at this cultural moment. And um, Wait, are you guys trying to say this QAnon stuff isn't real? Because uh, <laughs> uh, And there's lots of crazies uh, in every corner of the world. And, you know, in the initial days, now, my other main philosophical interest is precisely in computer ethics and about the cultural impact of the information age and the computer revolution. Um, and in the early days of that, I was among those who were very, very optimistic about our future because as I saw it, um, the computer revolution represents an upgrade to our basic information processing uh, systems as a society. And by that, I mean this conversation that I was just talking about across all these individuals. And the expectation was that once you do that, you've got this much more diverse and expansive marketplace of ideas, the best ideas in the marketplace of ideas should prevail because they have the best arguments for them. And therefore, you've, you've created a circumstance where you can really do a much better job of getting a handle on what you're calling objective reality. I don't want to wade in too much about what I think about that. So I'm not <laughs> well, I, I, not a real thing. <laughs> metaphysics comes up, I mostly want to say metaphysics, bah, and that way I can avoid even expressing a proposition, or at least that was my former view. I'm, I'm, I'm I think I used to have a pretty similar view in terms of like the internet. I was like, oh, it'll be egalitarian. Everyone will have a chance to express their thoughts. And now I'm like, boy, a lot of these people should not be expressing their thoughts. This here's is uh, we and, and, and I want to caution against what you just said, because because here's what I think uh, has emerged and what we didn't anticipate in those early days, which is that there's this deep, latent tribal tendency in humans. This is an evolved tendency that um, presumably must have served our ancestors at some point. It's about coalition building. It's about uh, defining an in-group, which necessitates defining an out-group. And um, as uh, Jonathan Haidt, the uh, celebrated uh, um, social psychologist, uh, likes to say, morality binds and blinds, right? It makes it the case that your, your community comes together, but it also makes it the case that you can't see how other people seeing things very, very differently could possibly be right. And what that resulted in, especially once we brought in some of this, uh, these, what I regard as really tragic developments in the unfolding of the internet, namely social media as it exists today, especially Twitter, which is the worst. I mean, Twitter you think is the worst. 
Absolutely. It starts with 140. It's, it's no longer they made revisions, so things are different. But when it comes in, it's 140 characters. You cannot have a meaningful, deep, sensitive conversation in 140 character snippets. You can all say something people, pretty clever. Well, yeah. All you can do <laughs> is a shallow, clever snark. Yeah, yeah. get, a, get a hearty ha. <laughs> Josh world. Right? And so that means that what you're doing is you're building up these tribes. And uh, there's, I don't see any way for Twitter to not be doing that. But the other platforms are doing it as well. And, um, it's, and it leverages this natural tendency in humans to have this uh, coalitional tribalism. Uh, and it creates all this divisiveness, all this conflict, all this uh, animosity which we would be much, much better off without. Do you think, do you think the, the internet is a, is a net negative or net positive for society? You know, exclude Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. You, know, <laughs> you can't exclude Wikipedia. What are the best things about it? Well, and, and, and Wikipedia actually Except is... Except for sex. How do you think marriage is? Like, I don't know. The, the um, Wikipedia is maybe the best example of the original promise of the internet working as we had hoped it would, right? Because in its original incarnation, again, again, these things have changed since their original versions, but in the original incarnation, everybody could contribute whatever they wanted. And the, the, the people who think that we need to have a, a central notion of everything and experts in charge and stuff like that, we're all complaining that can't possibly work and it worked masterfully. And studies comparing it to edited encyclopedias show that it was about as accurate, but much more, huge and covered a lot more topics. So Wikipedia is evidence that this, what, what's in the literature sometimes called the, the wisdom of crowds mm -hmm. can work, right? Um, that, that really when we do have this conversation together, uh, we do track reality really m remarkably well. In the case of Wikipedia, even though the only sanction was getting your comment, you know, replaced by somebody else's comment. And that, that would sometimes lead to these editing wars but eventually, the, the, the view that would prevail in almost all of the topics was the truth because the people who are att most attached to their views tend to correlate with the people whose views are true. Mm -hmm. and so the early Wikipedia was a great example of how, that, how we were hoping it was all going to work. Uh, the later Wikipedia now has a lot more of these moderating and tribal elements to it and is becoming, frankly, less reliable. Um, and so even if you include Wikipedia, do you think at this point in time we'd be, we'd be better off if the internet had never come to be? No, I don't. Uh, although I'm tempted that way, and we'll see how it turns out. How I'm, would this podcast even yeah. exist, Colin? That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> <laughs> so much good stuff that we can do uh, that uh, I would be I, – I, I can't imagine just striking it all. You know, if things really become dystopian, and they very well could, and I'm very, very concerned right now that they will. Um, but, but, you know, if things become truly, truly dystopian, then I, I may have to reconsider. And, and um, I wouldn't have even been able to dream of that 20 years ago. See, for me, I think one of the problems of the internet is essentially that, like, <clears throat> so many, we as humans are sort of like, yeah, we have like an evolutionary desire to sort of believe things that seem like they come from authority. And now with the advent of like, you know, video editing for all, like anybody can basically come up with a YouTube video that looks semi-professional and be like, see, 9-11 was an inside job. And they like, they quote one bad structural engineer who's like, yeah, that could be possible. And now it's like, all right, wow, see, now I'm asking questions. And like, because people 
you know, people look at it and they're like, well, this looks pretty professional, you know, and I'm just weighing both sides, but it's like both sides are not really as well educated on the topic. You know, like one side has many thousands of structural engineers who are like, no, it looks like a plane flew into it and it collapsed. Like that's the, you know, I don't want to say the objective truth, but the likely truth based on the information we have, you know what I mean? Versus like this one guy who, uh, you know, dropped out of school and just happen, happens to know how to edit videos and he's, but he can make himself sound pretty smart. And we as humans don't all have the ability to sort of like critically look at that information and be like, is this right? Like how, how does that make sense? Part of, that, of that story you're describing has to change, right? It's not the part about the person being able to make this, this view. Cause we need to hear that view. The only do reason we need, that's, that's what I'm saying. And I wonder, do we need to hear every view? Let no. me say why. The only reason we have as much confidence that we, as we do have that this was not an inside job is that people have tried to make that case and yeah. that case has been found wanting. Yeah. I cannot prove to you that a hypothesis is true. This is a logical problem. You know, a, a statement of the form, if P, then uh, Q. Oh, God, I hated discrete math so much. 9-11 <laughs> was an inside job. <laughs> I can't. I you know, can't. I'm convinced. I think that maybe it was. Yeah. You heard the P and Q part, right? <laughs> you can't prove that P by observing that Q. If P, then Q. I observed that Q, therefore P. That's an invalid argument. Mm-hmm. If P is your hypothesis, right? If 9-11 was an uh, inside job, then we would observe whatever. We observe whatever. It doesn't follow that it was an inside job, right? Right. You can do. You can't. So it, you, this generalizes. This is, I'm just uh, leveraging some stuff, especially out of Karl Popper, but it's pretty standard stuff in philosophy of science now. Um, what you can do is you can show that a hypothesis is wrong. And so you don't want to suppress all the wrong hypotheses. You want them all out there because the, what gives us confidence that the true hypothesis is true is that we've looked through all of the other ones and, and they all fail to match up to the observations. But so isn't you know, that the exact problem that's going on that a lot of these, you know, QAnon things and other, other stuff that percolates on the internet, you specifically can't prove that it's wrong. And then the, the, the response is people will just say, all I'm saying is look into it. That's all I'm saying is just look into it. And they just, you know, the whole idea being just go deeper down this rabbit hole. In a free country, that's going to be a permanent feature of the culture. There are going to be people that disagree about things that you're going to regard as absurd and that maybe you ought to regard as absurd. But the reason that you've got to let them have their peace is exactly what I was just saying. This is what gives you confidence in your own views is that you've met the other side. This is uh, John Stuart Mill's just channeling John Stuart Mill's famous uh, defense of free speech, right? Truth is discovered in its collision with error. You can't just sit and know the truth. And you can't prove that the truth is what, what it is. The best you can do is consider all the available hypotheses and reject all of the ones that are dubious, and then you're left with the other one. So these people are actually serving a... a um, so you don't agree that we should like deplatform Nazis or whatever? Absolutely not. I think that's the, mo- that's, that's the path that's going to lead us. That's why I'm scared now. That's the path that's You think that's worse? Horrific dystopia. And that's why... Uh, you know, Brave New World in 1984 and these other dystopias are flying off the shelves. After the, the um, deplatforming of Parler, mm-hmm. uh, uh, 1984 shot to the top of the Amazon bestselling list. People are scared to death of this because this is the path to a really dystopian future. Although free speech has technically never covered like incitement of violence or anything. Like it's always been 
excluded from the greater, you know, like, you, you know, we always said like you couldn't shout fire in a movie theater, right? That was the famous example. Like he wasn't allowed. Do you know where that expression comes from? What? That, that's a reference to a legal opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes way back in, uh, at the time of World War I. Mm-hmm. person whose speech they were suppressing was not shouting fire in a crowded theater. The person whose speech they were suppressing was a person handing out anti-war pamphlets. If you start suppressing speech, that's where that goes each and every time. He was saying well, it in a burning movie theater. That's how it all ties together. <laughs> He's trying to hand out <laughs> anti-war pamphlets. I just, it is interesting to me because there's always like, I don't know, like for instance, in Europe, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. You know what I mean? Like it's. Not- it, is. it has been abused to suppress uh, dissidents of all kinds. Uh, and I would not favor that even there. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I think the, because because here's, we can bring it back to first principles, right? If we're all occupying these particular perspectives so that we cannot see things the way other people see them, except by uh, engaging in, um, you know, conversation with them, then uh, if you empower some of those people to tell other people what they're allowed to say, you are impoverishing our whole cultural environment, no matter how bad what they say is. If it's but sometimes the truth, like it's easy to show that it's wrong. So to go back to your original point, right? You described the circumstance, and one of the key steps in your description was, um, you know, uh, some people out there can't do the critical thinking that's necessary to sort through for themselves what's true and false. That's the part of the equation that we need to fix. Right. We need to make it that's... the case that people are more media savvy, that everybody is is better at this. And then this will go up. What's preventing that right now is the tribalism, which is allowing people to engage in really bad arguments uh, when they encounter views they disagree with because they just associate any view with the tribe that is the outgroup. And then they show their loyalty to the in-group by bashing the outgroup. That's what's going on on social media. And it's a really bad place to be culturally. And it could lead to really terrible things. Do you think that a certain number of people in, in society just don't possess the critical thinking skills that are, you know, that would equip them to survive in a, on the internet where these, where things can look very real, everything can look real and enough other people are saying it. Um, Do you think, you know, that's kind of what makes the whole thing dangerous? It's certainly true at the margin that there are people who are not competent to be full citizens. I mean, that's what you're saying, right? And that's certainly true. There are people that we would think um, are not competent to exercise the full rights of citizenship. We believe that of everybody who's below a certain age, and that's an arbitrary line, right? There's plenty of high school kids who are perfectly capable of, of this, but plenty who aren't, and so we don't let them vote. We don't let them say whatever the hell they want. That seems perfectly reasonable to me uh, because the whole thing is premised on the idea that we need people who are critical thinkers, active and thoughtful people. Uh, and and it, it, it's empirical fact that some people are incompetent, but you should be very careful throwing that around. Right? One well, of, I think it's, I was, I was saying more the opposite. It's not, it's not taking the individuals away from the, the situation or taking away their rights. It's more the acknowledgement that that certain, um, you know, presenting certain things, um, you know, through a Twitter account or something is going to, you know, potentially infect so many people that we may want to to limit that, you know, and, and I know it's, it goes to the thing of should we deplatform people? Should we control mm-hmm. this? But if you, if we can identify something that's happening, um, you know, a movement saying that vaccines are unsafe or, you know, something like that, that's dangerous for society at large, is it, 
is it a, you know, the imperative of society to stamp out those things? That depends on what you mean. I mean, what are you trying to, what is this, who's doing the stamping, right? Are you empowering the state to exclude perspectives? Are you empowering some narrow um, set of tech oligarchs who have their hands on the levers that control the whole discourse to do that and to therefore be tempted and they will give in to this temptation to do that in ways that you will not approve of? Or is it more wise to just tolerate those folks and refute them in the marketplace of ideas. It and just seems to me that <clears throat> as a culture overall, I mean, it seems to me the latter is the only course that doesn't lead to a really ugly place. I think there's one group interacting in the marketplace of ideas. And then there's another group that's on parlor and it's just <laughs> like, it's hard to, hard to bring those two together. I, I think you're wrong, and I think you're not just uh, wrong about the facts there, but you're you're committing a moral wrong here. Whoa! Not acknowledging. Good thing there's no hell, Colin, because you'd be in trouble. <laughs> not acknowledging that there are these uh, different perspectives that people legitimately see things very differently in a deep and visceral way because of their very constitution. This is the kind of stuff that gets uh, that's documented. For example, I mentioned uh, Jonathan Haidt before. We can measure the moral responses to different stimuli, um, and then we can do a, a factor analysis to find out how many dimensions there are, and this is what Haidt does. And he finds ultimately six dimensions to moral response. And very consistently, the different political ideological commitments that people have map onto clusters of different traits in these basic psychological features. And um, so, uh, so the folks on the so-called left, the, the so-called liberals, although many of them are no longer liberals or progressives of some kind, and that's a whole other discussion, but uh, the folks on the so-called left are much more attracted to what are called the, uh, the harm oppression dimension and the, or the, the care harm uh, dimensions, whereas uh, conservatives have a balance of all six of these dimensions, and those include things like respect for authority and purity and um, uh, loyalty, um, and liberty. And uh, libertarians uh, have, a, a, yet again, another, a third way. They're, they're, they score very low on all of those, or uh, very high on the liberty oppression uh, uh, dimension, and very low on all the others, especially the purity dimension, right? And um, what we have are, and this is an, an illustration, if you will, of ethical individualism. What we have are human beings that are biologically built for very different responses to the same stimuli. And that all percolates up and that results in them seeing the world very differently. And the most important thing we need to do if we wanna actually learn how things are is we need to use as many eyeballs as we can get access to in order to find out how things really are. And I mean, you're pointing out, Colin, absolutely correctly, right? That uh, all those people over on Parlor, they've got distorted views of the world. But this is the part you're not understanding. You have a distorted view of the world. I have a distorted view of the world. Mm -hmm. All have a narrow distorted view. Not me. View. I actually know the truth, but go well, on. <laughs> I will concede that that's just barely possible, but uh, <laughs> I can't, I you can't not. a logical impossibility in that, uh, yeah. although I, I frankly doubt it. <laughs> I guess what worries me though, is this idea that like the marketplace of ideas will always produce um, 
more moral results when in fact we've seen in history that like some ideas fundamentally do become dangerous and and in you know the mass extinction of human life like yeah you know germany convinced a lot of people that jews were subhuman you know in america we you know a lot of the uh justification for slavery was done on this idea that like uh, black people were not as worthy of this idea and what those notice what those uh totalitarian uh regimes have to do, the first thing they have to do in every instance to sustain that big lie, they have to suppress the speech of the alternative. Yeah, but America wasn't a totalitarian country. Uh, Only for black Americans. Other white people could still... If you, mean, if you mean during slavery, I think the... I don't know if I want to get much into the... Because um, there's a huge issue about how to narrativize that history. Uh, and it's, it, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of difficulty in it. But mm-hmm. roughly speaking, uh, we should not lose track of the fact that slavery was not sort of invented whole cloth in the Americas. Yeah. That seemed like the norm. That was the inherited set of institutions that went back as far as anybody could look. And uh, there, it had its own special and uh, dubious and, and awful you know, features uh, in, in the so-called new, new world. But, um, you know, ultimately... Uh, the, if you ask me, the narrative that we should understand is, yeah, the marketplace of ideas works. If you want to appeal to slavery as proof that the marketplace of ideas doesn't work, that seems really weird to me. Because how did it happen that everybody believed that slavery was wrong? Everybody, damn near, going back as far in history as you want to look, was like, believed that slavery was right. And then all of a sudden, we had uh, the introduction of these uh, liberal societies in uh, Europe in particular, especially in Britain, where it was believed, you know what, we should let people say what they want. We should let people uh, have the liberty of speech. And within a few generations, slavery had become problematized. Within a few generations, it was being abolished, in, especially starting again in Britain. Uh, and it took, as folks imagined, uh, you know, a civil war in the United States, because there were people with vested interests who were not listening to the arguments, but had, you know, financial uh, interests at heart. Interests, right? Um, so, you know, it, if you had implemented a system of suppressing speech during a slave regime, you would still have slavery, right? Because the people in power would be able to suppress those, those dissidents. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's a good example at all. Now, what you're pointing to, there's a fact of what you're pointing to that is absolutely correct, which is that um, people are, can be terribly gullible, right? Uh, yeah. They get motivated. The truth doesn't always win in my, you know, we are, I think. Yeah, we are very, very flawed thinkers. And this goes back to the original thing we were talking about. The thing to fix <laughs> is, you know, the fact that people are not such, such good thinkers. But that is very difficult, and at the, at, the, at the end of the day, in the ultimate sense, I suppose, probably even impossible, because it's part of our, again, biological inheritance, that we wind up having all sorts of shortcuts in our thinking, all sorts of biases that we're typically not aware of. Um, and one of those is to engage in this kind of motivated reasoning that we were just talking about, that the slaveholders would have been incentivized uh, to, to engage in. The, the only way to get outside of that, that I can see, since none of us really does occupy that position where we're beyond the limits and the, you know, I keep doing this like a horse with blinders on, right? Uh, that, that narrows the perspective. The, the reason that, um, the only way that I know that we can get beyond that is, again, this conversation, this, this sharing of how it looks from each of our perspectives. And uh, the people that you don't agree with are going to look like lunatics. And what you have to appreciate is 
to you to them you look like a lunatic and it's i am a lunatic they're uh, right they should be but to you know to them um uh the well and to everybody right everybody else is just barking mad right do you think the do you think the calculation changes when it's accompanied by violence and what you know what level of violence is acceptable to maintain to to say no that's that's okay as so well because we still have to maintain the you know yeah, yeah. free yeah, flow of ideas margins right of, of all of this it seems to me is when somebody is actually engaged in violence or is advocating violence uh it's, it's inciting i think you said before in violence um because that's a different thing right i mean we can we can uh draw a pretty sharp line between actually inflicting physical harm on someone and even the worst kinds of speech. So, um, you know, um, and, and that's what rights are all about, is about setting up those boundaries. And, and the, these are gonna be contested, I think, probably permanently contested across different perspectives, the exact boundaries. But the rough boundaries are pretty clear, right? Bodily integrity and stuff like that. And um, that means that we can drop laws right there, which are less susceptible to abuse than laws about the content of speech. Laws about the con, or, you know, tr- to suppress speech that you think is false or something like that that's going to slip the leash i think i think i think it's much too dangerous to even contemplate unless you think you know everything right now uh you should not want to go down that path um but saying look you can say whatever the hell you want but your right to say whatever you want ends at you know my my body well as a let's say as a thought experiment there's a there's a place where people gather and they discuss how they they hate another group and they say, we're going to attack that group. Um, we're going to go injure them and kill them. And then once a month, someone from that place goes out and they kill a few people. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we would all agree that we should lock up that person that, that went out and killed the people. At what point after how many months do we decide we really need to, to get a handle on this place? Or do you think no, because at that place, they're only talking. So, so it's going to depend on, on what's going on there with some precision. But what you just described sounded to me like a conspiracy to commit murder. And that's itself a crime and should be. Well, that's right? a, yeah, it's a, that's a, but then you're just talking about a law. Do you think? That's right. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that a lot of these Facebook groups are conspiracies to commit crimes, whether or not a crime happens or not. If they are, in fact, planning to commit crimes, yes, and they absolutely are that. And having them on Facebook is still a good thing. Because now we've got the paper trail to prove it in court. It is true. A lot of people did get themselves thrown in prison because they posted on Facebook. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and hilarious. And it's important that we're talking here about Facebook because it was Parler that got deplatformed. Yeah. This stuff wasn't done on Parler. This stuff was done on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. And who did the the blackballing and the blacklisting and the suppression of Parler? It was people beholden to Twitter and Amazon. Amazon was the one that really kind of. Yeah. Amazon was like, all right, enough is enough. Well, you know, there was a riot. So they were like, maybe we shouldn't get involved in this. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, these are the thorny issues that we have to wrestle with right now. Um, Because I, I I don't want to come across sounding like um, some, uh, you know, Pollyanna ish, you know, it'll all be wonderful. Uh, no, no, no. I think they're complex philosophical problems. I don't think anybody's right or wrong. I think it's just a, it's hard to know. And we live in a strange world where truth and, you know, reality are hard to discern. I don't think it's, you know, 
It's complicated. My, my favorite thing related to Amazon deplatforming Parler is that the the head of the pirate party in Sweden is like, or not the head of the pirate party, the the head of the the pirate bay okay. is like, that's it. You're just giving up. Come on, we, <laughs> we switch servers every month. Come on, choose somewhere yeah. else. <laughs> well, and that's what's going to happen. I mean, uh, Parler is up now. They got their website up. They don't have the full um, mechanism, so they're not actually a social media site right now. But they've got a website anyway up, and they're working on the back end now. So they will come back, and um, I'm not sure that this is going to be a good development because what it means is that we're seeing the splintering even more. Um, I mean, uh, look, instead of banning free speech, how about we ban all social media? No, I, I don't. I don't really mean that. Yeah, but, I was going to say but, it seems like a philosophical problem. <laughs> so, so uh, I wouldn't actually want to do that. But let me explain why that would be a better solution, and it would be content neutral then. So we wouldn't be empowering the state or anybody to be suppressing anybody's uh, ideas. Uh, if, if here's what social media does, I think uh, it creates conditions of the worst kind of conformity, the opposite of the heroic individualism I was talking about before. It creates incentives for people to demonstrate their loyalty to the in-group by bashing the out-group. And that's what the out-group exists for. That is the root of so much of what has been wicked and wrong and bad in the history of uh, human culture, that if we could figure out a way to manage that, that would be, in my view, the key. But social media doesn't manage it. It makes it worse. It makes those incentives stronger. It, it incentivizes you to do this in a purely performative way with people you've never met or had a real conversation with based on a snippet of their text and responding to them with a little tiny snippet of snark yourself. It does not- oh, No, I write whole paragraphs of snark, don't worry. Well, you know, satire is good, right? Um, and <laughs> a way to, uh, to unfold, unpack and skewer, you know, what's, what's wrong-headed about what's going on in, or. What, what if I have a friend and they're just super anti-vax and I've tried to reason with them dozens of times and they just like won't listen to me? Should you, you know, kill them? Is that moral? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a limit to what you could do. You know, I would I would advise against killing them. I think I don't know about morality, but it would. What, can I vaccinate them while they sleep? <laughs> it certainly isn't going to be conducive to the good life to be a, a murderer, even of anti-vaxxers, as much as that. Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, but uh, there's there's a limit to what you can do, and at some point you just have to say, look, uh, you know, it's 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 your life, and you're incredibly wrong, and this will be borne out. It's already been borne out in the evidence we have so far, and I'm fully confident it will be borne out uh, going forward. And that's all you can do in a free society. Okay, we got to play some games. We're getting on. We're getting on in the time. So let's play some games. This guy's got this guy's got kids. I think a kid. I don't know. I got to go play World of Warcraft later. We all have busy lives. I assume you're doing something with your life. <laughs> I hope so. I'm not sure, but okay. You have guitars and stuff. So Playing a guitar and riding a motorcycle, I assume. That's Same right. time, I would assume. Yeah, we're for motorcycling right now, but... Uh, yeah, it's quite cold. Uh, all right, so the first game we're going to play is uh, Fuck, Mary Kill, but we don't do it with people. We, we do it with ideas, and I think the fun... Would you rather do philosophers or like actual schools of philosophy? Uh, I think either works for me. Either works. It, Colin, it, do you have a preference? I I, I'm not going to know enough about either, so I'm. I'll just uh, choose whichever. I think schools would be more. Would be easier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll do schools of philosophy. Yeah. So fuck Mary Kill schools of philosophy. I'm going to type in schools of philosophy so that we have a few. Uh, List of schools of philosophy from our good friends over at Wikipedia. We go. Oh, it's an alphabetical order. So many. Yep. Okay. Do you want to um, start, Richard? 
fuck uh, Mary kill any of them we usually start with fuck okay so that would mean that would you know in this case would be something you like it may be not like your marriage material philosophy but you know something you you get into you know um <laughs> well you know, there's there's a this lot is quite a comical idea we've stumbled on <laughs> So, How do you feel about absurdism? That's first on the list. <laughs> oh, there we go. Monty Python. I'm a huge fan of mine, Monty Python, precisely because they give expression to the absurd. And so, you know, existentialism and um, uh, I don't know. I, uh, there's, there's too many to list. I'm more into philosophies than I, I don't think there's any I would want to kill. Yeah. Uh, well, there are some that I think are, are, although there are some that I think that are really dangerous. And I would be. fuck uh, dialism because even though I don't personally really believe in anything i think just total nihilism is is tough because it sort of like it's sort of like it's hard it's hard to find morality after that like if nothing really matters then like how do you be good and i do think you should probably be good so yes. like is, insofar as i think on a cosmic scale nothing actually matters like the planets don't give a shit whether we live or die or commit terrible atrocities like it doesn't actually like matter on a universal level it matters to me, but like, you know, this, yeah. this is exactly what led to the existential crisis I was talking about that is forcing me to reconsider because I think, and it's what Nietzsche understood by the death of God. It was this emergence of nihilism. And I agree with you 100% uh, that nihilism should be understood not as a philosophy so much as, as a problem that needs to be overcome. Yeah. Uh, and I would uh, fuck hedonism. It's the only correct answer. <laughs> It is kind of the, you know, technically the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to put your dick into one of these schools of thought, <laughs> uh, I would marry existentialism because it's my own, you know, I do agree. The way I'd understood it when I looked into it in college, which admittedly is a very bare bones, you know, stripped down idea was basically like, <clears throat> we, ex the fact that we even exist at all is totally absurd. Like it's so ridiculous. And to even try to understand it is almost beyond the capability of human thought. But that, that, you know, just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to take, you know, the most out of it and appreciate the gift of being alive and still try to be a good person and enjoy yourself. And, you know, just because it doesn't make any sense doesn't mean you can't like, eh, I'll try to be good anyway. So I like that. I think that's, I think that's cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm done with that. Um, pretty much the whole, the whole deal there. Uh, and there's, there's in the, in the history of philosophy, right? Existentialism is often contrasted with uh, Platonism. The problem with existentialism is it might lead to that nihilism that we were talking about. Before. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a slippery slope, as they say. Yeah, yeah. and uh, the, the solution to that might be this Platonism. So in my head, I have this war going on between Nietzsche, who's an existentialist, or at least has those tendencies, and uh, Emerson, who is a kind of Platonist, which is the very opposite. What is a Platon? What is Platonism? This, this comes out of Plato, right? So this is the idea that there is an ultimate nature of reality, which is true, the true, the beautiful, and the good need to be understood in this perfect abstraction that you can encounter in a pure intuition in your mind. And this has profound religious overtones. At the end of the day, it winds up being uh, almost a mystical thing. And I, I came into this as a pretty much a, a committed Nietzschean, uh, or really, uh, since I'm trained as an analytic philosopher rather than a continental philosopher, um, uh, with tendencies that worked in that direction, you know, and as a kind of um, uh, new atheist type like Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. And that, I was firmly committed to that till about five or six years ago. And then to my own amazement, Emerson started in, in this battle, right? I paced back and forth and they're arguing, right? And eventually, uh, Emerson started getting the better of the argument. And it's precisely because of this problem of nihilism. So um, 
and that's a whole nother long story. But the, the, the point was, I agree with you. Okay, fuck nice, you. great. I think you meant fuck in another uh, uh, sense, right? So this is the problem with the word fuck, right? It has, it can mean anything. It can be an adverb. Yeah, no, it's great. Verb, right? Um, but yeah, it's, in the sense of boo, right? Uh, fuck nihilism. Uh, but in the sense of, yeah, I'd get down with that. Then uh, Yeah, uh, no, it was more like... Existentialism, right? It's more like sexy. Yeah. Yeah. Like fuck Mary Kill, you know, like the game. You're not like kill is bad. You fuck kill, is like, you know. Kill you want nothing to do with. Fuck you'll right. you know, mess around with it. So I would say I would kill libertarianism. I uh find the whole concept rather silly. Do you mean metaphysical libertarianism or do you mean political libertarianism? I get I don't know. I maybe objectivism then, like if we're gonna go like pure philosophical just like this whole idea that like we all can make our own truth and you can just kind of do whatever you want. It's cause like, I'm just like, uh, no man, you got to consider the fact that other people exist and like, you can't just take what you want. Like the world is complex. Libertarianism, political libertarianism says. I mean, it's basically like people should be left alone and the state should. Yeah. Yeah. That, that doesn't sound like not understanding that other people exist. Yeah, no, from a political perspective, yeah, I mean, I in theory, sure, we should all, like, I don't know, because, like, yeah, the state should leave people alone, but, like, also people need help and we need roads. So, like, we do actually need, like, a political apparatus, you know, like, not everything can be done through private corporations, so. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, I think that's an empirical question. We can't decide by thinking carefully about it. Yeah. No, well, there was a pretty... All I'm, all I'm saying is ask more questions, you know? Just, yeah. just ask more <laughs> There was like this whole thing, like um, there were like these folks tried to start like a libertarian like uh, society up in like New Hampshire or something like that. Like they were all going to like move there and like, what's up? It's called the Free State uh, Project. Free State Project, right. And the whole thing ended up turning into kind of a nightmare because like they, like one lady was like feeding the bears because like she just wanted to. And like other people are like, all oh, these bears are becoming kind of a problem. <laughs> like, so, so I'm a, a sort of half-hearted participant in the Free State Project. And are you? Oh boy, dude, I feel silly <laughs> now. <laughs> um, uh, I got to tell you, that's the, 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 what you're describing. It, it was a disaster. That's not the experience of the people that I've ever heard from. Uh, in, really? Yeah. I'm only a half-hearted participant because I couldn't commit to actually making the move. But um, yeah, there's lunatics. I mean, yeah. lunatics. Because right, some of the people are like, I don't think there should be age of consent, and it's like, all right, well, you know, there's 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 people at the fringe, and, and we're already talking about a, a outside the mainstream movement. So there's no, kind of, sure, yeah, I'm not saying that's representative. And it's also the free state project in particular is, um, as they like to say, it's the boss, it's not the ideology, right? It's, so it's a coalition of people. So there are volunteerists. That's the kind of um, uh, it's a it's a style of anarchism. Um, but not everybody who's a libertarian is an anarchist by any stretch. I'm certainly not. Um, and there are uh, folks who are what are, what are called uh, minarchists who believe in minimal government. I'm not even really that. I'm actually a classical liberal. Um, but I think if there's these empirical questions, so for example, you mentioned provision for uh, the needy. It seems mm -hmm. to me an empirical question whether or not state provision is going to actually succeed better than private charity or other kinds of private uh, provision or whether it's gonna to lead to corruption and when, under what circumstances, it might lead to various kinds of corruption or various kinds of um, you know, information uh, distortions. Uh, that's the kind of thing that Hayek would talk about uh, in the actual information processing systems that we use to manage distribution and production of resources. So 
Um, so yeah, I think I, I think it's a lot more nuanced uh, than you're going to get probably on Twitter. Uh, I think that's why you you uh, had the, what I would call. You think because I like to? No, I wrote a story in the Atlantic. Are you kidding me? You couldn't learn about this on Twitter. I, I follow <laughs> comics and sports on Twitter, and it's awesome for that. <laughs> yeah, there. Well, there are you know a a, a, a ticker of. Uh, scores right twitter can manage that i suppose no i mean it's just like there's like sports writers i one thing i like about twitter is you can interact with people who you would otherwise never like i one time i i tweeted this joke at one of the guys in broken lizard which is like the people who made super troopers um and the guy like wrote back and like riffed on my joke and like i would never get to riff with the super troopers guys without twitter like come on yeah, and I think I think you're right that that's one of the advantages of these um, internet Direct interaction. We were asking this thing before about whether the internet is a net bad or a net good. I think it's definitely a net good so far, as long as we can avoid collapsing over into some kind of dystopian future that I'm sure we none of us want. So you don't want to kill any philosophies, is what I'm hearing. I really am not keen on killing anything. You know, I actually am a pacifist, right? Uh, or I Me was too. exactly a pacifist, or as I like to call myself, a coward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> opposed to wars that are popular right because I, I actually marched it yeah i don't think there's been a necessary war in a very long time well that's the thing i think uh i think uh initiating the use of violence the the anarchists we were just talking about will use that as a principle it's always wrong to initiate violence i'm not comfortable with those kinds of strong principles um yeah almost i mean you know if you were say freeing the folks of north korea well, i could you know there's a interesting there's almost always these exceptions to the rule, and you know, state yeah. out for an exception to that, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I don't, I don't believe in that kind of dogmatic absolutism. Um, but in general, I think, uh, yeah, the uh, every philosopher, every philosophy should be heard, and then it can stand or fall on its merits. And we have not just a, an opportunity, but I think really an obligation to try to engage that, to actually try to make When we say fuck, Mary kill, we're not saying destroy it off the face of the earth. We're saying that you don't like it. It's yeah, not, it's for, not you. for you. Yeah. yeah. It's, not. <clears throat> it's about the impulse, right? All right. So let's, we, we can say it's about what is, what is your first instinct, right? Which might be to do one of those three things. Um, well, no, it's more like, you know, like we do it for pizza a lot. So when I say I want to kill like Pepe's or whatever, I'm not saying no one should enjoy Pepe's. I'm just saying it's not on my list of pizzas that I want to eat immediately. Yep. yep. We didn't right. explain enough nuance. All right, let's move on to the next game. <laughs> We're about out of time. Uh, so this game is called Mayor for a Day. And basically what it means is I, we basically give you a million dollars, do anything you want, and then in the greater New Haven area, however you think it would best benefit the community or whatever your personal uh, interests are. So do you have any ideas? I think if there's one thing that we could do in this neck of the woods that was- Is it create better QAnon videos? Provocative and it's gonna fit with all the stuff I've said so far. Um, I think the, the schools need to be incredibly um, reconsidered and rethought from the ground up. And I would like to see basically these giant institutional prisons destroyed brick by brick. Which schools? The, the colleges or the, the um, elementary schools, all the schools? Well, the, the university system has got its own problems now, but I'm, I'm talking about, yeah, the, the, the schools, uh, the public schools for um, K through 12. And uh, I think these institutions are built in a way that is designed for an industrial society that we don't live in anymore. And uh, they are incredibly distorting. Uh, they're all about learning not how to think, the things that we've been talking about here, but rather how to sit down and shut up. And I think that's a really, really bad thing. 
Uh, and so if I had a million dollars, uh, I don't know if that would be enough. I would have to look and see. No, no. that would not even be close. We normally <laughs> don't allow education as an answer, but we'll, uh, if you want to destroy the schools completely, we'll take it. Yeah. I could tear them down for, with a million dollars. You could yeah. build a bomb with a million dollars. The alternative, but the alternative uh, that I would want to, so maybe I would take the million dollars to try to lobby someone to provide the rest of the money would yeah. be to actually provide uh, something close to a, a, a really robust uh, school choice system that made it really easy to start your own school so that we would have the whole city would be peppered with uh, basically neighborhood schools that uh, would have to make or that, that could be uh, th this would still be publicly funded but um, you would get all these different perspectives in a way that would be much more convenient and uh, effective for, for parents and a lot less inclined to just teach school which is um, I think what the, what the schools mostly teach they don't teach children they teach school and teaching school means sit down and shut up until the bell rings. My uh, friends were in a punk band, and one of the lyrics I always loved was, school is garage for children. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. And uh, I, like, it still sticks with me. It's like, you know, I thought it was 100% true. I definitely had teachers in school who, like, taught me interesting shit. But, yeah. It's not the teachers, right? I mean, this is that's the other side of this. This would empower those teachers, right? Because I yeah. imagine teachers would be the ones starting these, these neighborhood schools. Yeah. Conversely, 25 kids just talking all at the same time is kind of a nightmare in its own hell. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to find a way to actually make that conversation work, uh, even though you're going to have all of these different uh, voices. And, and that's not impossible if you got, say, 25. It gets really unmanaged, because that's what I do in a classroom, right? Uh, but it gets really unmanaged. Well, yeah, but you teach adults, not fucking no, third Who've chosen to be there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's also true. <laughs> That, they, that it's not compulsory that they have to be there. And, and in fact, in my classes, it's not compulsory at all because I don't, I don't do the, you know, I'm not going to mark you down for failing to show up or whatever. I think also like people who go to your school probably are the age where they can show, you know, decorum and yeah. like not just shout over, you know. Yeah, kids, kids are unsocialized little monsters, right? They really are. Yeah, you know, they have to be stopped. <laughs> I got talked in over the course of this uh, pandemic to getting a new puppy, uh, which at first I would resist. I'm like, you don't want to get a puppy at the time of the pandemic when everybody's crazy and busy as it is. But then uh, they, they said, no, no, this is the perfect time to get a puppy because everybody will be around and they're right. But, you know, having a puppy around is like having a, an unsocialized toddler around who never grows beyond being an unsocialized toddler. And so, yeah, it's really been brought home to me just how difficult it is dealing with people who are not fully cooked yet, not, not fully baked as the um, critical thinkers, the, the individuals, right, that, that we aspire to create. I and mean, I know a few people, Colin knows them too, who are uh, perfectly of age who are not fully baked yet. <laughs> I never will be. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Okay, well, that's about as much time as we have. I had other questions, but we just were not able to get to it because you share a lot of philosophical thoughts, so. I'm full of them. And it's okay. That's your job. It's all right. Well, with being that person. You could not be anything but a philosophy professor. <laughs> uh, it, it is in my bones. You were faded for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like I'm faded to be a small town podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, Richard, do you have anything you want to plug before we go? Like a website or? Well, yeah. The, well, the most important thing right now is just the, uh, you know, the philosophy department. If, if you enjoyed any of this, if it was provocative, if it made you angry because you want to respond, right? Mm. Any of that, I, by all Don't means, email me. Go to Southern. Josh or, or Colin, right? Those, those guys are fully innocent. I bear the full responsibility for what I've said here. 
and don't blame the rest of my department for it either because I speak for myself right now, but now I'm going to speak as chair on behalf of the program. We got something for everybody, whatever it is that you are into, whatever you think is right. We've got, we make an effort to try to make sure that all of those different perspectives are represented and um, we would love to have you. And you don't have to you know, necessarily be a student. Come join our philosophy club or whatever. I don't have a website for that just yet. We're in the process of putting one together. We had a Facebook group. But you know, folks are welcome to email me if they want to, um, say, join the conversation. I can include them. Right now, the philosophy club meetings are happening every week starting um, next week uh, via online remote meetings. So it's easy for anybody who just wants to drop in and join the conversation to do so. You don't have to be a student. You don't have to be uh, um, uh, anything in particular. You don't have to know a bunch of philosophy. Conversation is very freewheeling, much like this conversation we had here. And I just lay it all out just like I've done here. And I expect everybody else to do the same. And we have a good time. Cool. All right. So, yeah, uh, if you just Google Richard Volkman, V-O-L-K-M-A-N, um, I assume if you go to scsu.edu, you could track down the philosophy department that way. So, yeah, go check it out. Take a philosophy class. You're going to learn a lot, you know? Yeah, they're um, very fun. I will say the couple of philosophy classes I took were some of the best best classes I took just because they're very, very interesting. Yeah. When you think about a college experience, that's the kind of thing that you you picture people sitting around just talking with each other. So, Yeah, they made us take philosophy and ethics uh, in engineering school because they're basically like, all right, otherwise you'll all become mad scientists. We know we have to teach you some base ethics. Yeah, totally. Yeah, computer science is all ethics and, and logic uh, yeah. philosophy classes. Yeah. Like, you better learn about Plato before we uh, teach you how to build this universe. <laughs> yeah. So um, cool. Yeah. Go to between two rocks.com. Uh, I think I've set this up on youtube.com slash between two rocks, which is presumably if you're this far to the podcast, you already found, I don't know. I can't tell you. So Colin, uh, you have your apartments for rent. So just check Craigslist. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nothing on there right now. Nothing on there. No inventory. So no inventory. Don't rent anything from anyone else. That's right. Just, <laughs> just hold ready. steady. There'll be something else <laughs> soon. <laughs> uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you had a good time. I did. I did indeed. I hope you all had a good time too. Yeah, That's totally. Uh, and yeah, this will be on YouTube and Spotify and all those jazz. So again, if you're listening to this, you already have gotten through the whole thing. So I don't know why I'm telling you, but uh, here we are. Thank you guys so much and uh, have a great night. Between two rocks. <laughs>